Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Sunday the 11th. Michael, how have you been since we last spoke? Oh, top-notch, Gary, top-notch, wonderful. So, we've got a good bit to go through on a Sunday show. I want to talk about Joe Biden talking about fires in theatres and the danger of political metaphor. A little bit of a story on the the IMO. Also, people for profit and uh, monarchy. And a little bit on a uh, letter that went into the Irish Times on the government's policy regarding COVID and telling people what exactly their rights are. Or more exactly, not telling people what their rights are. And then uh, a little bit on the um, the ILGA story as well. But Michael, first to start off with, I've got a little story and it's not for the listener, it's just for you. Oh yeah. And it's this. Socrates is on trial again. But this time for money laundering. So- Socrates so- is on Socrates trial for is- money laundering, but the judges have so far found insufficient evidence for corruption allegations. The man has fallen, I think you'll say, quite low. Uh, are we talking about a Brazilian football player here? No, no, we're actually talking about the Portuguese, well, the ex, uh, the Prime Minister of Portugal, the ex-Prime Minister of Portugal, Jose Socrates. Okay, that helps. Because on one hand, the Socrates that... I knew it was kind of dead, and I thought it'd be weird to take him up for currency. So, okay, that makes more sense. Yes, I'm, I'm. Would it be beyond them to dig up a dead philosopher and try him for money laundering? Do you know what, Gary? I think if they could dig up Socrates, they'd make more money by selling bits of him. Anyway, that's not a story for the listener. That's a story just to confuse Michael before we start. Get you in the right headspace, Michael, for a complicated uh, discussion. Gee, Gary, thanks. <laughs> Always the <laughs> Oh, it's the little things I take delight in. It's the little things I have to take delight in. So, uh, we may as well start with the, the ILGA story. For those who haven't been listening to the last few podcasts, this is about a group called the ILGA that signed a feminist declaration that called for the removal of all laws and policies that... Um, limit the ability of adolescents to consent for sex and a host of other things that was written by um, a group called the women's right caucus which i can't find any evidence of but i'm still looking for and i think i've pinpointed actually who wrote it now the interesting thing about this in ireland is that the story hasn't really been repeated by anyone but grip and we're taking a lot of heat over it about some of the reporting decisions on it however it has gotten into news in a couple of other countries because the ilga actually had about 1600 members spread all throughout the world so Scotland, for instance, got brought up in the, um, we had a Scottish parliamentarian bring it up. Stonewall in Scotland had to come out and say that they were absolutely not campaigning to lower the age of consent. Unfortunately, that's just led to people uh, screenshotting parts of the declaration that we reported and going, then why are you a member of an organisation that's saying this? Yeah, it's, it's a tricky one, isn't it? It's it's a tough old position to have. You support the document and everything in the document, Except the bits of the document that you don't support, but you're not that you're, it's not that you're not supporting them. It's just that well, can we just talk about something else, please? I mean, this isn't the point here. You know, just move along and stop being. Yes, I, I did have uh, I did have someone earlier today accuse me of because I reported this and the document has you know like thirty six pieces and I only reported two, Michael, because they were the two that related to the legalization of um, this. And I was accused of cherry-picking that information by not reporting the rest of the document. And I didn't really see the point of going, well, in 34 of the sections, they didn't mention the age of consent. <laughs> I'm sorry, do you remember that? I can't remember, was it from, was it, was it Brass Eye? 
Um, it was an, uh, um, Steve Coogan is playing. I think we might have mentioned this before. I have because I think it's a favorite sketch of mine. It's the guy who's in charge of safety or something in a, in a public swimming pool, and he goes through. Two thousand and one, no drownings. Two thousand and two, no drownings. Two thousand and three, no drownings. Two thousand four, one drowning. It's a bit like they want to go through. Third paragraph one. No references to lowering the age of consent to 10. Paragraph 2, no reference. But that, that which is grand, you can do that. But the problem is, then you have the two articles which do say that, and what you're still you're still left with them, whatever, whatever else you want to do with the rest of the document. I have really enjoyed the people trying to push back against the document. And oftentimes saying things like, well, I'm not going to read this script story, but this is absolute nonsense. And then they will argue with you and you just sort of go, but if you've read the article, at least then you could say it was wrong. There, there, I saw two people, and I must admit, I, I, I thought you were displaying a level of patience and engagement, which was positively saint. Like I, I thought, frankly, waste of your time, but there you go. Talking to these people on Twitter and one is, though, I see this is from group, so I'm not clicking on that story, obviously. Is this true? I, I did, I did, I did love that. People sending out a link to the grip story or screenshots of it and saying, I'm not going to read this. Someone else tell me if it's true. Yeah. So you, you don't, you don't want to give us clicks, but you're sharing the material with other, this doesn't make any sense. But I've heard some bizarre things like that they, they only wanted to decriminalize sex between people of similar ages. Nowhere in the document does it put that limitation on it. It was 16 pages long. If they wanted to, they could have put it in. Stuff like it was only for um, medical treatments. It doesn't say that in the document. It explicitly says consent to sex. Tons of stuff. The one we've got most pushback on is the line where we said that they wanted to get rid of consent, age of consent for anyone 10 or older. And people have just been going, well, where does it say 10 in the document? And I've been saying, well, it says adolescent and explains that the WHO definition of an adolescent is 10 to 19. And they're like, no, no, no. And they didn't say 10, therefore it isn't real. Well, they used a term defined as that. And that is now the entire point upon which this is hanging on. And Michael, I must accept that I may have slightly encouraged that um, that approach by giving not terribly good answers to that question. Because you see, Michael, I know something that they don't know. This is an elephant trap, Gary. You are laying an elephant trap for them. Yes, because shockingly enough, before going and seeing if... Uh, what someone means when they say adolescent, I wasn't just going to count on an external body saying it. I was going to find the people I thought were the authors of this document and see how they defined adolescent on other material on their website. And Michael, it might shock you to find that I have things from the website of the people who I believe wrote that document where they define adolescence as those between 10 and 19. Shocked I am. Shocked to discover there is gambling going on in this institution. You were shocked and horrified, Gary. So that's a little bonus for listeners of the uh, of the podcast. I am looking into this, and once I can conclusively prove that these people are, as I believe they are, the uh, the authors of it, we're just going to update the piece with a, oh, and by the way, they themselves say it's 10-year-olds. And we've just given you a week to hang yourself. Have fun with that. You have to imagine there must be fun at a dinner party. But, of course, they are very worked up about this. So we'll give them about a week to keep hanging on the uh, adolescent thing, and then we'll just slam that shut. Uh, it'll also be interesting to see if it eventually leaks into the more wider, into the wider discourse in this country. Since it's, 
It's got as far as the Scottish Parliament. You never know. It might might get as far as the county council in Kerry. Well, this is the interesting thing about the ILGA. People are saying we're picking on the ILGA because they're an LGBT organisation. They're actually just one of the first organisations I was able to pinpoint that it signed on to this. And they have Irish members. And one of them was Labour LGBT, which then makes it of interest to an Irish group. The problem here is the ILGA has 1,600 members. So it has very prominent members everywhere. So any country this pops up in, the ILGA is going to be a great in for anyone there. So in England, they're talking about it because uh, I think Stonewall is in it. A lot of the big uh, LGBT and feminist groups are in it. So it will be it will be good fun, Michael. But I have a feeling the story is, is not over yet. It has, it, has, it has legs, Gary. This is going to run and run. Yes, and it will be watched from the sidelines by the rest of the Irish media. Until such a point as their move to write an article denouncing Grift for reporting this for some reason. God bless them. Oh, they'll get to it. Anyway, little little small thing just about the IMO. Now, this is a story you may have seen. It was in um, the Irish Times, I think. And it was about how the IMO had told doctors at, to stop um, giving out AstraZeneca jabs. So on Friday, the IMO, the um, the Irish Medical Organization, which is effectively the GP's union, or as they would say, representative body, because they're not a working class organization. It's not a trades union, Gary. It's a professional representative body. Send out a letter telling doctors to no longer administer the AstraZeneca vaccine to very high risk patients until sometime next week. Now, the interesting thing here is this. NIAC, which is the National Immunization Advisory Committee, had told doctors to keep uh, vaccinating with it and that they were going to come back early next week after looking at the um, recommendations and that they might give a, a different result then. The IMO explicitly told doctors to ignore the NIAC recommendation that they should still be vaccinating and said it is advised that you wait to organise clinics for very high-risk patients until further advice issues from NIAC. Which is a bit of an odd one, because on one hand you're saying, well, they've said to keep vaccinating, but don't do it, ignore their advice. While on the other hand going, but if they come with further advice, absolutely abide by it. So you may have seen that story. I just wanted to point out that it is interesting that the IMO would effectively overrule NIAC. Yeah, seemingly waiting for further clarification from NIAC, which I don't, is that code or is it just plain language? Is it simply, well, if NIAC come back and say, no, no, keep going ahead, well, then we say, okay, well, we'll go ahead. Or is it code for, we'll wait for them to come back with different instructions and then we'll go ahead? Well, I'm not saying, by the way, that the IMO are wrong here. I actually have no idea how the IMO is involved in the vaccine rollout or what their interest in this is other than being a representative body for doctors. It's just interesting that we have actually have two medical organizations within the country now, should we say, slightly disagreeing with each other, at least for a period of a couple of days. Yeah, it might be better off. We had a little bit more disagreement in the country between doctors. Anyway, so Joe Biden, finally some American news. Thank God, something outside the country and not related to COVID. Joe Biden stood up there the other day and he was talking about gun control. And that argument isn't really important. What is important is that the example he chose to demonstrate that rights are limited was this line. You cannot shout fire in a theatre. And I have a thing about the use of political metaphor. 
Because it's very easy, Michael, when you start speaking in metaphor, to get some pretty heinous shit over the line pretty easily. Indeed. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about the idea of fire in a theatre and what that means and where that comes from. So the actual line comes from an American legal case from a guy called uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, or Justice Holmes, if you would prefer, Michael. Who is one of the... If you ask pretty well anybody, any legal scholar in the United States, a legal historian, when they're putting together their their top ten greatest hits... Justice Holmes is always in the top ten. In fact, in the top five, he's regarded as one of the great liberal justices of the court. However... But he was ruling on a case. So what was the fire he was actually talking about? And it was it was a very interesting case. I, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this first name, by the, or, or this name. But I think it was Schenks, S-C-H-E-N-C-K versus the United States. It was in 1919. And what had happened is the defendant had been opposing the draft in World War One. Holmes, when he was saying this, you can't show fire in a crowded theatre, was actually saying you can't oppose the government draft. That was that was where we went from metaphor to what we're actually talking about here. And it was a I don't think when most people are saying that, they realise quite where it comes from, nor where not where it would lead eventually, but where it led then. It was, do you accept this? Okay, well, then you're going to jail because you spoke against the draft. Have fun. At, at a distance, it seems like actually quite, particularly for somebody with the reputation as a liberal, it's kind of a strange decision. It was a unanimous decision in the court at the time that it was a violation of the Espionage, Espionage Act, which was then amended by the Sedition Act of 1918, because he was giving out flyers opposing the draft in the First World War. There's, you, you're, you're talking about metaphors. There's a phrase that, I, that I'm particularly not fond of, which Holmes uh, based the ruling on, that this represented a clear and present danger, which is this phrase the Americans are very fond of, to the government's recruitment efforts for the war. Uh, clear and present. But God, it's a stretch, isn't it, Gary? You, that, that in itself is an act of sedition, that it was a a danger to the government's efforts to recruit soldiers meant that this you could he on that basis you could abridge his right to free speech. Remembering that historically, the American protections for free speech are very, very strong. In 1969, there was a case called Brandenburg v. Ohio, which was actually in itself quite interesting. But that changed it so that speech could be banned if it was likely to incite what they called, um, I think the exact phrase was, imminent lawless action. And then they also talked about, you know, what was a clear and present uh, danger, which is the the previous standard. And there's also a case between that, which we won't go into, which was called Whitney v. California. And you can kind of see there's a clear development of of American approach to free speech over those, what, about 50 years in between those? Yes. It's an interesting one. The use of political metaphor is widespread and it can be i mean i cannot remember which parliamentarian it was but there was a british parliamentarian during the height of empire who spoke about how it was just a natural for strong plants to grow and to spread their seeds over an area and then use that to basically justify the colonization project also it's 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 worthwhile just as you said just digging into the into the history of these things to see what they're what they're actually used to justify because Shouting fire in a crowded theatre, 
as a defense for limiting speech is just it's one of the most quoted phrases by politicians all over the world that you're going to find because it, it, it it's a it's a very effective phrase because it conjures up a very effective image we, we've all been in theaters or in cinemas where it, it's you're, it's full of people it's crowded it's pitch black and you can you can um, you can you can imagine empathetically the sense that you might have if somebody suddenly started shouting fire fire and the panic that would ensue and the trampling and people desperately trying to get exits and that obviously seems to be a very bad thing the problem is the bridge that you can build on the back of that foundation to get from a to b get from wherever the wherever the government is to where the government wants to go and it is useful i, I think you're right in this case to remember precisely what the purpose of this started off this was used to justify stop criminalizing effectively a man from standing on the side of the street handing out leaflets he was not shouting fire in any kind of a crowded theatre. He was engaged in political debate. Is an interesting one, but also the nature of the political debate. It was the draft. It was something where you could be forcibly inducted into the army and had a fairly decent likelihood of being killed. So it was, you can't talk about this. Yes. And particularly as well, as we contextually, about a war that the United States had succeeded in staying out of for quite a long time and in a political culture where from the very foundation of the state the founders one of the founders of of the united states had said that the united states should stay out of foreign political entanglements yes but michael you can probably find a founder of the united states who said exactly the opposite thing well actually i don't know if you could i really don't I, I, there was a deep suspicion of the idea that they should get involved in foreign, you know, they leave foreigners and their kings and their businesses to their own things. We, we should mind our own gardens. The closest you get to the idea of an interventionist political policy is the Monroe Doctrine in the United States, which says that to the extent that America should be interested in acting outside of its own borders, it's within its what it would call its sphere of influence in, in the Americas. But outside, but the idea that they should get involved in foreign wars in Europe was alien to them you're right they got distracted uh, insulting each other and calling each other hermaphrodites <laughs> for those of you who think that modern day political campaigning is getting nasty i advise you to look back at some of the very earliest american elections and see what the founding fathers were willing to say about each other look at the look at the kind of rhetoric that was used around about lincoln and in the the, the lincoln's both election two elections or any of those in fact the, the absolutely horrendous stuff my favorite one was jefferson talking about adams he said that he was a hideous hermaphrodital character which is neither the force and firmness of a man nor the gentleness and sensibility of a woman <laughs> you see now you put me in opposite situation i can't both of them died I think they both died on the same day, didn't they? Jefferson Adams, and maybe I'm confused with someone else, but I think we'll say it was Adams was dying and was aware that he was dying and says in his almost last breath, said, Jefferson wins. <laughs> he was dying first, or he thought he was dying first. Maybe he hadn't. American, not just, not just American political debate, but across the world in the 19th century was, shall we say, robust to a degree. There was a case again. Now, admittedly, uh, the whole issue of the Union and slavery did drive passions 
But there was a case where one Southern senator, I want to say Calhoun, but I might be wrong, came onto the floor of the Senate and almost beat a man to death with his walking stick. Yeah, he did. On the floor of the Senate. Until I think eventually the, the, I think the desk collapsed and the man managed to get away or some other senators intervened. And this, <laughs> in the, the temple of democracy that is the American capital. Now, I'm actually just, just on to be absolutely correct on a point. Jefferson did not say the hermaphrodite thing directly. What used to happen was um, everything would be done through proxies. So I think that came from a, a newspaper editor that was friendly to Jefferson. But the belief was that Jefferson had written it. Yeah, because, of course, they didn't campaign. That was one of the odd things about 19th century uh, politics in the United States. I don't know if that, was, that wouldn't have been a presidential campaign, but uh, the candidates didn't campaign. During, once they were elected, once they got the nomination, they didn't campaign. They didn't make comments to or for. They would make speeches. There might be debates at, before it. They would set up newspapers that their names weren't attached to. They would pay for everything, and they would say horrendous things about the opposition. But it wasn't them. It was a newspaper, and you know what newspapers are like. And then it would just fold and disappear once the election was over. Once its job was done, it was, uh, and consequently, obviously. This was done in getting back to the original point in 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 a context where free speech, political speech protections were very strong indeed. That the worry, the worries that you might have had that saying something about your opponent might land you with a defamation suit just didn't appear, because you could basically say anything the hell you'd like. I mean, defamation law was a lot less important when you could shoot a man. Oh, yeah, jewel, a good old jewel. Yeah, that actually regulated people's actions quite well. And also, of course, that. They did, there was there was also uh, criminal liable, which was uh, which, which was there, and that had maybe a, a slight limiting effect on the thing that if you could produce something which was both malicious and <laughs> calling Adams a maverick, you'd imagine would land you. I mean, it's hard it's hard to imagine that it was both. Tr- it was either either true or not malicious to say I that. I think the argument was that his character was that of a hermaphrodite. That it was neither there one thing or the other. Which is not very nice to hermaphrodites, because I'm sure many have been hermaphrodites are very fine characters indeed. Actually, speaking of um, political metaphors and how easy they are to go wrong, I present to you the white man's burden. Oh, God, Rudyard. Starting with... Shouldn't we do everything we can to help the world? You know, shouldn't we uplift people and all of that good stuff? And you accept the principle and then you're like, right, well, here we go. And then you stand there watching the opium wars going, you know, this isn't what I meant, but it's what you voted for. It's free trade, Gary. You have to have free trade. The Chinese daring to close their harbours to opium was a provocation. Michael, I will not disagree with you on that. (laughs) In much the same way as I feel that I am... Some large commercial organizations in Colombia, for example, feel about the regulation of the border controls with the United States, where they're trying to import their very fine product. Well, if they were to do it through the medium of the East Indian Trading Company, then I would perhaps find that persuasive, but they don't. They don't, this is true. So, yes, just a, just a, it's a little pet peeve of mine, political metaphor, because they, they just, even when they're right, they're just cheap. They're effective, they're apps, and you're not going to stop using them, but just, it's just something that you should note with politicians, and you know, don't give them the inch. Don't give them the don't give them anything. Spit on them. <laughs> B- 
but metaphorically. That came out a lot harsher than I thought it was going to be. But as I was saying it, I was going, there's only really one way this could come out, isn't it? No, I have I have many friends who are politicians, and some of them, I presume, are good people. And the rest, you don't care. You're not a moral arbiter, Gary. That's not your job in life. That You leave that up to God. There is an area, Gary, where you would hope that the government would be an accurate and successful arbiter. And that is in the area of the law and what they decide is legal and what they decide isn't legal and then communicate to the public about what is legal and what isn't legal. I don't think that that is an unreasonable expectation for the citizen. Or am I excessive in my expectations here? Anyway, uh, there was an interesting letter in the Irish Times uh, referring to the fact that the Department of the Taoiseach issued a press release on the 31st of March, which we have talked about actually here before, which said that if you have received the second dose of the vaccine for more than two weeks ago, you can meet with other fully vaccinated people from one or other household indoors without wearing masks or staying two metres apart. This measure comes into place immediately. To me, actually, when I'm reading it out loud now, Gary, that seems to be like them saying you can have sex. But then again, maybe my mind is just in the bad place. However... It is the opinion of the authors of this letter, and the authors of this letter, I should say, are Professor Oren Doyle and Professor David Kelly of the COVID-19 Law and Human Rights Observatory in Trinity College, Dublin, that this is a little bit more complicated than it first seems. They say that this is the latest example of the government misleading citizens about the legal obligations. In October, the Ms. Fred told the Doyle that the Organisation of Religious Services was not a criminal offence. We've talked about this. The Gardaí continued, the government has now changed its interpretation of the law. Uh, so we now know that, for example, saying mass and having letting people into church is a criminal offence. Or if you're a pastor in Dublin and you have a service, you can, the guards will come in and shut you down. However, um, in this particular case, it is worth noting, they say, Notwithstanding the government statement, presented as a measure with immediate effect, it remains a criminal offence under current COVID regulations to invite people from another household to visit your dwelling unless you or they are part of a paired household. No exception to this legal rule has been introduced for fully vaccinated people. So if I I could summarise that, Michael. Don't go to church, because even though it's probably not illegal, you will be arrested because the government has directed it be so. And do go to other people's houses if you're fully vaccinated, because while that is illegal, you will not be punished because the government has directed it so. Broadly. Well, for the time being, the message I would take out of that is, if you're going to go to someone's house... Go under the cover of darkness and through the back door. Because while the current situation is, the current dispensation will say is, that this is not going to be prosecuted, it still remains on the statute statute book as a criminal offence. So if the guards wanted to, they could do you. And the government would 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 be the business of saying, ah, well, you know, what can we do? It's not, Gardaí are an independent body, and quite rightly so. The DPP is an independent body, and quite rightly so. And they have made this decision. They have seen the law as the law is written, and they have enforced the law, which is their duty. 
It's just one of those things. You're a pessimist, Michael. Anytime we have seen wide-ranging laws that are enforced not due to the letter of the law, but rather arbitrarily at government discretion, it's worked out fine. When has that ever gone badly? It ha- that is true. It has always worked out fine. It's it's never gone wrong. And leaving people up, leaving the thing up to a bunch of people to make an arbitrary decision about what law is the law and what law isn't the law. I mean, the, the chances of it going wrong are infinitesimal. And it's not like it's a technique used by nearly every totalitarian country so that if anyone ever steps out of line, you'll have done something. Yeah. I mean, it's not Kafka-esque or anything. No, the law is simply what the government says the law is, but not true legislation, which is technically the government speaking to you as well. Ignore that, unless it's also paired with a verbal confirmation, which may change from time to time, so do please keep watching TV. I think it'd be the handiest thing if, if you just got a letter uh, signed by Leo Varadkar, the Minister for Health, and maybe Michal Martin, since he's still there, saying, it's okay, lads. It's cool. I told them they could do it. The restrictions, by the way, here, do not make any sense, and they haven't made sense for a good while. I'll give you a good example of this, Michael. Go on. Uh, one I don't think anyone is aware of, outside of Gript. Under the guidelines, journalists and those involved in the production of media can go anywhere they want, without restriction. It's an, es- it's an essential, it's essential work. A couple of weeks ago, I got talking to a guy who was trying to do a charity run from, uh, is it... Mizzenhead in Cork? Or sorry, not Cork. Mizzenhead is... Um, no, it's Cork, I think, isn't it? Mizzenhead. From the, the very south, from Mizzen to Mallon. And it's 512, I think, kilometre route. We want to run this to raise money for mental health charities. And right. He said, obviously, this is not a great time for mental health. He had uh, gotten TDs to raise this in the doll. He had got in touch with the Department of Health. They'd asked him to put together a full plan, which it looked like they hadn't read. But the guy had, like, a full detailed, I mean, quite long safety document about where he would be, what he would do, who he would meet, and neither TDs nor the Department of Health nor anyone could get this lad the permission to actually do the run. But then Michael, after realising the limitations of government, reached out to me. Absolutely, that's the, that's the natural progression of power in this country. <laughs> and he... he was asking me for advice and I was saying look you could look at Aaron Doyle uh, he wrote some legal stuff you could try and talk to him and see where you stand on this or this is just a you know a thing you could do it for gripped and he said what do you mean and I went well you doing the charity run isn't covered but if you wanted to do a documentary about the charity run and about mental health that would be perfectly legal that would in fact be perfectly fine for you and a team of any size to do yes and he said, well, it'll probably be easier than completing the 500 kilometers in six days. I was like, yes, probably. There will be a small bit of talking and you'll have to take video and you will actually need to do this. You do need to get us content and you need to record everything and all of that jazz. And they was like, oh, grand, I'll update the safety plan. I was like, no, no, just fucking bin that. <laughs> there is literally no limits on what we can do now. Just give me a line that you'll be going up and I'll okay it. And that was, that was it. That was just, now it's a media project. And that we will be putting that up on Gript, I think, soon. It's, it's actually looking pretty good. But, like, the guy ran, he's raised about 50,000 quid for mental health charities. And don't give a shit about that. No. But the mere fact it was in any way a media project. And it was, for those who were like, that's terrible, how could you okay this? It was a legitimate media project. We had to make 
uh, shoot everything for a documentary and we'll put it together and we'll upload it. And hopefully the organizations and the charities involved will get a little bit more money from that and everyone is happy. But like that's that's farcical. But actually, it's a, it's, a, it's a very good example of bringing two completely separate ideas. He wanted to do something useful, but he couldn't do it. However, if he was a journalist, he would be essential. Now, being a journalist in Ireland, he'd be essential, but not at all useful. So you brought the two things together and you made him a journalist who was doing something useful. And that made him, that's basically like a phoenix. That's one of the rarest things you could see in the land, both essential and useful at the same time. So bravo. But I, I, I was going through the stuff he sent over because it was very like, you know, I've got everything. And I was like, you don't need any of this. You literally just need a letter that me from me that says you're doing this as part of a media production team. None of this shit was necessary, but it's very clear you put a lot of work in. So good job. But like, yeah, he tried. He'd, he'd gone to everyone. There was a full safety plan there. He was of no risk. To, to anyone. I mean, I think he was staying in a camper van that he had a team with him with. And just, no, just you can't do this. It doesn't matter what it's for. And then with a single letter, because it was a media feature, fine. No restrictions. No need to say anything. You can just do it. Having said that, I'm sure the documentary will be fantastic. Yes, and we, we, we look forward to it. And we will we will tell the good folks out there when it's on and how they can get to see it. Yeah, and he was like lovely guy as you would expect from someone willing to run 500 kilometers to raise money for charities. God love it. So just from someone trying to make the world a better place, Michael, to someone trying yes. to better themselves. Should have brought this up after Britain, but we didn't. People Before Profit and the death of Philip. For those who haven't seen, People Before Profit have announced they're not going to give condolences on the death of Prince Philip. And Michael thought this was terrible. And I thought this makes quite a lot of sense for people before profit. Why would you give condolences? No, 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 no. no. It wasn't. It wasn't that I thought it was terrible. I thought two things. First, I, was, I thought it was confusing because there was a quote going around from Connolly, James Connolly, talking about monarchy and monarchy is a bad thing. But that confused me, Gary, because I'm a simple bear, and I know that it's not monarchy in itself because obviously. Lenin was a monarch, and Stalin was a monarch, and Mao was a monarch, and you know Venezuela is a monarchy, and all these places are monarchies. So it's not monarchy is the problem because, and then I thought maybe it's hereditary. It's hereditary monarchy is the problem, but then Cuba was a hereditary monarchy, and North Korea is a hereditary monarchy, and there are other places I'm sure if we think of now are hereditary monarchies. Uh, it's not that it's an oligarchy because they're all oligarchies. So I'm struggling to understand. I I, I don't get the nuance. Why is this a bad monarchy? And it's not about money, because by God, we know that the royal family in, in Venezuela, the Chavez family, who were the previous royal family to the current one, um, enriched themselves in the most spectacular way, made themselves richer than the British royal family who have been there since. The Windsors slash Hanovers came into power in Britain in 1714, I think, with the death of Queen Anne, the last of the Stuarts. And they haven't got the kind of the money that, that these the the uh, the Chavez family managed to get together only around twenty years. So it's not about the money. So I'm I'm struggling to understand what the particular thing is about the English or British monarchy that's objectionable. The second thing, yes, a man is dead. His wife he's left behind. Presumably, they were fond of each other. They seem to have been. He has children and grandchildren. He may even have great grandchildren. I don't know. In Ireland, historically, we uh, 
we like to think we do death well. We have rules about how you comport yourselves when somebody has died. Oh, I don't why you don't like don't talk, don't say anything. De mortis nisi bonum. Of the good, say nothing. Of the dead, say nothing but good. If you can't say something good, say nothing. That's what I did when Tony Ben died. I said, okay, nothing. I, it's just so classless. Now, you said to me, but for their core vote, their people, they think this is great. And I know what you mean. But two things. First of all, allowing that they get their core vote for where they do, and I would still observe that many Irish working class people still have rem remnants of bourgeois attitudes to decency and, and respect when it comes to people dying and may not actually find that this is a particularly edifying process. And even if it's appealing to your core, I don't think it's the kind of thing that will grow your vote. And it's just so fucking obvious and so childish. And so, ad no, not childish. Let's go back to a word which I know has caused controversy. It's so adolescent. No, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to say the opposite to you all. Because I'm an independent thinker. I won't be bought. If it makes you, if it makes you feel better, Michael, they've now deleted, not the Connolly tweet, but the one they had up that said, no, we are not sending condolences. That's gone now. Actually, also gone from People for Profit social media, I noticed, was People for Profit Galway put up a statement a while ago because one of their members was accused of, I think, sexual harassment. And they put up a, a an apology and then they had to put up another apology because they hadn't put his name in the first apology. They've all disappeared. That's odd. I know. And I, I went back and they've still got material from before that. So it's almost like they put it up for a while. And then as soon as they thought they could get away with it, they deleted every mention of it. It has been... What's memory hold? Memory memory hold, yes. I was going to say wormhole, but no, memory hold. No, so people for profit come out, they say this. Lots of people kind of go, we don't like Prince Philip. We were the only one. They're the only ones who are honest enough to say it. He was a git. Is he going to lose much from this? Also, it means people are talking about people for profit. Newspapers are reporting on people before profit. And I don't think their core group cares. And they may actually grow this a bit because they're trying to reach into a lot of the young communities where you're seeing a lot more sort of openness for quite extreme political rhetoric on the left. Uh, so, you know, cheering on the death of a man who did fight fascism. Yeah, that's that's the thing as well. Whatever one's opinion on the man who was variously known, I think allegedly, allegedly, the late uh, Queen, uh, Queen Mother used to call him the Hun. Um, Princess Diana called him Stavros. The palace uh, guard, shall we say, used to call refer to him as Phil the Greek, which, I, for those who are old enough to remember, uh, there was a very funny uh, thing. It was a, a was it spitting image. He used to go down to visit Phil. The, would go down to visit his his cousin Stavros in a in a in a kebab shop somewhere in the East End. It was very funny. So he was there, and he was he was what he was, but. For these people who are constantly talking about, you know, fighting fascists, punching Nazis, this guy actually went around the Mediterranean on a piece of metal uh, where there were bull bullets and shells and torpedoes and shit going around him because he was actually fighting real fascists and real Nazis and actually putting his life in the way of a clear and present danger. You know, that's surely it's worth, worth some kind of kudos. We did a full show looking at the, the background of Antifa, the, the original founding of it. 
in Germany. We did. And also the trouble they got into when they were asked to decide who are the real fascists here? The Social Democrats or the literal Nazi party? And Antifa sort of went, hmm, Social Democrats have a certain look about them. A lot of them. Yes, I... uh, that actually, I, I would recommend that uh, article for, or that podcast for people who are interested in the history of Antifa. It goes through the original founding in Germany as an offshoot of the German Communist Party. It doesn't go into the sort of second founding of it you see in the um, punk scene and, uh, later. But if you want like a, a good look at the original, I think it's actually a pretty solid roundup. It also has the great joy of pointing out the origin of one of Antifa's most prominent symbols actually came from a group that hated everything about the founder of Antifa. Yes, and that's that, which is that's a fun thing to know. Uh, you know, if you ever happen to be in a pub, if we ever get back to the pub thing again, and you're talking to one of these guys, you know, that's, that's, that is one of your genuinely fun facts. Yeah, and the other thing to remember is that the guy who founded Antifa, a guy called Ernst Tolman, uh, Tolman got what was coming to him. Absolutely. And Stalin left him to get it. Yeah. So there's very little sentimentality about Stalin. Yeah, you see, after the Molotov-Ribbentrop pack, when Nazi Germany and Soviet uh, Russia joined together, there wasn't a lot of time for people like Talman. The, to be fair, the Ribbentrop-Molotov came as a bit of a surprise to the to the far left in Germany. <laughs> yeah. a, bit of, a bit of a disappointment, shall we say. Yeah, there must have been that wonderful moment of, we're all dead. We're actually just dead. And actually, most of Talman's communist friends who went to... uh, A lot of them actually tried to go to the Soviet Union, and then Stalin just killed them. Oh, that was such a bad idea. You know, I mean, whatever one feels about this, I have read some of those stories about... I mean, and not just in this case, but benighted, but absolutely convicted people who were really possessed of a genuine belief in this, in a system, in a philosophy, in ideology. And they end up going to Stalin's Russia, getting back to Stalin's Russia. And they get there, and most of them don't get that far from the train station. But somewhere in some cell, in the very traditional Russian fashion, pistol, back of the head, bang, good night. It really is sad. You think, really? You know, you you couldn't have imagined it, but the only place that was really going to work for you, son, was Brooklyn. You know, and you could sit in with all the rest of the Russian communist immigrants there and talk about the terrible situation of the exploitation of the workers in the garment district in New York. But at least nobody was going to come in, take you in the middle of the night and shoot you through the head. But they didn't know that. There was an old joke that if the Tsar had known what was going to happen when Lenin got off that train, he would have been met by a sniper. The, the best thing about the Lenin train thing is people don't know. Lenin had been in Switzerland and couldn't get back to Russia for the revolution. And, and the, fer, the or shall we say the fermentation that was happening before. The Germans put him on a train. They sealed the train hermetically. They sealed it. There was no way. He, it was like it was like he was a, a biological weapon. And that's really how they saw him. They put him on a sealed train and sent him to Russia. And like they were sending his dirty bomb. And that is how they saw him. And by God, they were right. But isn't that fantastic? You're talking about political metaphors, Gary. That train was a political metaphor. 
they sealed it, they put him inside, they sealed it, and they said, this is only going to be opened when you get to Russia. You're not getting out beforehand. And he got to Russia, and then the glory that was the Bolshevik Revolution would, uh, went ahead and happened on, under the, the aegis of Lenin, who succeeded uh, in the... Uh, Lenin the First was succeeded by Stalin the First. And it and it went on its merry way. But on the on the the joke that if the Tsar had known what was coming, he would have had a sniper meet Lenin. The end of that joke is uh, luckily Stalin was a student of history, and he decided never to repeat that mistake. <laughs> so uh, escaping to Stalin didn't end well for most of the communists. They used to Orthodox Jews in the uh, in the shtetls they used to pray for the Tsar, which is. Was, common enough uh, in Jewish communities, they would pray for the civil authorities. But the particular prayer that rabbis would pray for the Tsar was, they would say, Lord, keep the Tsar well and far away, which worked fine with the Tsar. The problem was when Stalin, Lenin and indeed particularly Stalin came in, didn't matter how far away he was. His reach was very long. If you were lucky, he was just going to draw like erotic sketches of you, but that very rarely ended there. No, it's more barrier. Okay, now we're going into like esoteric Soviet. Shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We won't, we, we, we won't, we won't, we won't go into the second predilections of barrier. Although that's a show that we could, that would be an interesting. Show Not that too. we could broadcast. There is, there is no like adjudicator of podcast content, but I have a feeling one would be found, <laughs> depending how deep into barrier we went. And no, stop. No, you said that. Like, like, no. Okay, moving on. So people before Prophet said some unpleasant things about the king, but they are also the only people saying those things. And that has value in politics. Even if you're wrong. You just don't want to be so wrong, you lose your core people. And I'm not sure they are. I think most, like, I think there's a lot of people in Ireland who do not like the British monarchy. Or just have a general state of disdain towards British institutions. And for those people, people for profits messages are perfectly fine. Unless they actually apologise, in which case they'll just look pathetic. Oh no, they won't do that. I, that that's that's not in the the lexicon. I was thinking there, well they've actually they've taken down the um the images and that's usually the first step to an apology. But all that made me think of is when the Daily Mail faked that they had got rid of page three. Daily Mail? Sorry, the Sun, yes. The Sun faked uh the Sun faked getting rid of page three. How? So the Sun, about 2015, the Sun is famous for its page three, which for those who don't know, are softcore pornography. I, I don't even know nowadays if it's classified as pornography. Beachwear. Sometimes half-naked women on page three, usually with some sort of humorous quip or very astute political observation, which is humorous then by juxtaposition. But there was a massive campaign to get rid of page three. Um, it was largely driven by middle-class feminists who were boycotting the sun, seemingly without realising that in order to boycott something, you have to have purchased it in the first place, or at least people have to believe you purchased it in the first place. So the sun took this campaign for a while, and then page three just disappeared. And then the next day, there was no page three. And then people started commenting on it about how this was a great win for uh, feminism and how, you know, this campaign had brought the sun to its knees and the sun refused to comment on this to any media source. Right. And then they, um, about after about a week, page three, 
under a headline that said clarifications and corrections. <laughs> and then there were a lot of very, very unhappy people who were like, they misled us. They let us believe we had won. And like, they did, yes. But you see now, page three, which at this point, due to internet pornography, was absolutely nothing. And I think page three eventually did go away entirely because with internet pornography, there's no point. And it was kind of quaint. It had reached that point. It was genuinely just kind of twee, almost. But, so that's eventually what killed it, not, not anything. But it became, page three became, again, front page news. But the, the actual, what they wrote in the clarifications and corrections was, uh, we would like to clarify that this is page three, and this is a picture of Nicole. <laughs> we would like to apologize to the print and broadcast journalists who have spent the last few days talking about us. Very good. So that's all. That, this may just be the setup for a bait and switch. I have nothing to apologize for a moment from people before profit. I'm quite right, too. Never apologize. Mm, never apologize, never explain. Yep. Never complain, never explain. Don't apologize because they don't care anyway. Well, actually, that, I think that is actually true now. There was a time when an apology properly done at the right time could actually get you some political bonus points. Now it's all you do is you just feed the flames as they demand more and more levels of abnegation and self-criticism. Just to, it's, it's a waste of time now. So I think we will wrap up there for the Sunday show. But, but, but as it is the Sunday show, Michael, and we have a, a minute or two before it gets to the hour, we're talking about splitting image there earlier. What's your favorite yes. um, splitting image? Sketch. For those who don't know, Spitting Image was a, a... It's back now, but it's probably terrible. But it used to be a political satire show done using puppets. My favourite sketch they did was... Um, there's a song called Tomorrow Belongs to Me. Which oh, yeah. is from a... Um, it's from Cabaret. And it's the song sung by the Nazis in it. And it wasn't actually a Nazi song. It was um, created by the writers of Cabaret, who I believe were Jewish. But Spitting Image did a version of it, which is just... Thatcher and Thatcher's cabinet and it is it's pretty mean-spirited like it's not a pleasant comparison <laughs> oh no they were savage at times absolutely savage but it's really well done and it's actually pretty catchy and the it only has I think Thatcher at the end of it saying the last line not as a song just tomorrow belongs to me <laughs> yes and they they did it in that voice which was very close to Thatcher's actual voice. She just looks into the camera and says in this quite soft, tomorrow belongs to me. There was something deeply unsettling and disquieting about that. It was very funny. Yeah, it was very funny. God, funny. Oh, God. There's a few that are in my head. I mean, the, you know, Never Met a South African voice. It was a great song. Um, just uh, two that I would say that come to me was, one, just in the context of, the, the the recent the, the 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 royal family being in the news there's a really it's a the royal family christmas and princess margaret is there out of her noggin on and wanting to think up name children's names for prince charles and they're all names of gin the queen mother is there as she always is played as she's a, a wealth seller from the east end anyway the, the the central joke is they're playing monopoly and it Try Philip bad particularly, but all of them because every time any of them throw the dice, they land. She says, "That's mine." No, it's not. No, it's not. Bloody woman! It's not your. It's just who's queen? I'm queen. It's mine. <laughs> oh, but the other one, 
was Thatcher, as it developed, became more and more masculine until you had this scene where it was really grotesque. You had Kenneth Baker, who was portrayed as a slug in it, and he was really horrible. But there's a scene where Thatcher, who's now dressed always in, in a, a suit, um, a dark man's sort of business suit, and smoking cigarillos. There's, there's a scene in it where you've got two members of the cabinet, whoever they were, I said, Jeffrey Howe and Dominic and, and Lawson will say, standing at a urinal, getting ready to pee. Just as they do, Thatcher walks in, stands in front of the urinal, in between the two of them, pees and leaves. And one, one turns to the other and says, I don't know about you, but I can never go when she's standing beside me. <laughs> I don't. There was something about that image which I thought was just was brilliant. Spit, spitting image when you actually look back at some of it. Some of it was just spectacularly cruel. David Steele was absolutely convinced that they destroyed him. They made Steele into this character. He got smaller and smaller. David Steele was the leader of the Liberal Party. And the Liberal Party had been going through a bit of a, an upward bounce in the 70s and been irrelevant for a long time. But... Then the SDP split off from the Labour Party in the early 80s and then went into coalition with the, the, the with the Liberals. And the leader of the SDP was David Owen. And they used to have the characterization was that Owen would be petting Steele in this way. Like, Steele was this miniature figure. He, he, it made very little of Steele. It, it, it was like he was a not not even a, a a pet dog, but this utter irrelevance, this tiny little figure, and Steele was absolutely convinced that it just, it destroyed him uh, as a figure in po- in politics. And a lot of those, uh, a lot of uh, Thatcher, you see, Thatcher was just displayed as this man, mad maniacal dictator. But you know, in a funny kind of way, if you're going to be satirized, that's not a bad way to be satirized. If anything, she's she's still scoring strong, on you know strong leader. She wasn't weak. She wasn't. It's much worse if you're portrayed as weak or watery or indecisive or pompous, or whatever. And uh, Neil Kinnock, pretty savagely done. A lot of them. The Pope was funny. Do you remember the Pope? The Pope. The Pope uh, was this. They hadn't done this odd kind of slightly hip. Pope figure. There's one. He was he was on a roller coaster once with a cardinal, and he tells the cardinal that he's he's leaving because he's got a better job offer. I don't know, Coke or somebody has offered to make him CEO, and the cardinal says he can't go. And he said, the Pope said, "What are you going to do if I leave?" And the cardinal says, "We're going to sue your ass off." And the last line for the Pope was, "Shit, stuck in a dead end job for the rest of my life." That is the Sunday show. We will see you again on Wednesday. That is the Sunday show. All the best.